All right, we have a quiz that is up and available through today that you can take any time through now or 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. And that's covering chapters 4 through 8 as half the questions and chapter 9 as the other half, which was the sun, which we've all finished up now. We have the second exam coming up next time. So that will be Wednesday. That'll cover the little bit of chapter 2 we hadn't finished plus 3, 4 through 8, and 9. So the material that we're going over today is for the next exam. Everything is covered for what you're going to have on, on, the cur on the current exam coming up on Wednesday. Homework 4 is due next Friday, not this Friday, next Friday. And this will cover the sun and the stars, the material that we're covering right now. And do make sure, sometimes you miss them, there is, the question 9 continues on to the back side and there is a question 10 on the back side of the, of the paper. Two, three, here you go. And then we have a quiz. Quiz 4 will also be a week from Friday in class. So this is one on the stars that I do specifically in class, so it won't be an online one that time. We'll do it on lab day. I'll spend the last... Depending on the lab I'm doing, it'll be the last minute, few minutes of lecture or the first few little bit of the lab class to be able to do the quiz. And then we have a second article review. I've just added that up. That's due the following week on the 19th of October. So that's coming up, as, that's coming up shortly, as, shortly as well. And in fact, the one thing I didn't put on there, and I'll have to add in, I'll have to see when I did the first set, is I should be asking for a second set of your solar observations probably in the next probably somewhere within that, probably by the, maybe by the end of this week or the beginning of next week, I'll let you know. I'll, put, I'll add that in next time. I just thought of that. I really haven't asked you for another set. And I do those, should do those three times before the end of the semester. So I'll probably put something in there. Again, it's the same as the last time, whatever you've observed, so I can take a look at them and see how, how anything has progressed since the last set of observations. So shouldn't be any other work other than what you're already, already doing. Questions? All right, picture of the day for today. Beautiful picture. Can you see? You can see the object highlighted. Gone through great lengths there to make sure you notice which object it is. Right? That nice little tiny faint thing, kind of highlighted with all the marks, and then zoomed in down here. Here's what we're looking at. Amazing object. You know what is it? The most distant galaxy ever detected, or something? Actually, it's something much closer to home. This is actually a comet that was discovered this year. And this comet right now is out in the solar system between Jupiter and Saturn, but it's on its way in. And in about a year, it will be in towards by Mars. And if you recall, as an object, as a, something gets closer to the sun, it moves quicker, right? So it's going to take it a year to move that. But then over the next couple of months after that, it will come zipping in through Earth and Venus and Mercury, come tearing in towards the sun and around the sun. This comet actually has the potential to be one of the brightest comets ever. So it's a possibility that if it survives its passage close to the sun, not known for sure. We don't know that much about its orbit exactly. We've only seen a little tiny piece of its orbit. So trying to determine exactly where it's going is not you know, completely accurate yet. That'll get better over the coming year as we get more and more detail. As it gets closer and closer to us, we'll get a much better idea of its orbit. Right now, it's expected to pass within one solar radius away from the sun. So sun's here, you know, one more solar radius away. That's pretty darn close to the sun for a piece of ice. 
So if it's not very solid, if it's not solid enough, if it's not big enough, it may be broken apart and torn apart as it passes close to the sun. If our calculations that we estimate are a little bit off right now, it may pass too close to the sun. Oh, thank you. It may pass too close to the sun. It might just get completely burned up, completely evaporated. It might just be gone. If it doesn't, after it comes around the sun, which would be December of next year, it'll actually pass relatively close to Earth. And if it does, if, that, if it survives all that, it'll be one of the brightest comets predicted to be, probably one of the brightest comets that we've had in quite a long time. So very interesting possibility coming here that we could have a very nice comet that will be visible. Again, will it be visible to us here in this part of the country is a good question. It really depends on where it passes relative to the sun. If it passes further north in the higher parts of the solar system, it should be nicely visible here. If it passes further to the south, it's going to be visible down in Australia and New Zealand and we're not going to be able to see it. So even if it might be nice and bright, but that doesn't mean we're going to be able to see it. So we'll know a lot more as the orbit as it gets closer. But this is the image, this is one of the earliest images of this comet. Way out there by Jupiter and Saturn. Not, not much now, but come another year to year to 15 months, it could be, and the prediction right now is that it could be brighter than the full moon. So that's a pretty bright, that's gonna be a bright comet with a tail. If that's visible here, that'll be something that we have not seen in quite a while. You know, in this part, in this at least in this part of the country, there's been a couple of nice comets down in the southern hemisphere. So it's our turn to get one up here. You know, they've had a few. It's our turn to actually get to see one. Hopefully. We don't know. Could get destroyed by the sun. Could get too destroyed that it's just not as prominent when it comes back out. There might not be as much to see. May not be as, you know, bright as we think it will be. You know, maybe it won't be near that bright. Most of that we can't tell until it gets much, much closer to the sun. But something to watch if you think about, if you're even thinking about this class a year from now. Could I erase, erase memory, right? Forget it. Forget about astronomy class. We don't want to remember that anymore. Think about it again next fall. You know, what will happen, what was going to happen if you start hearing about the comet, you know. Here's, here's one of the first pictures of it. Way out, way out there, in, way out there in space by Jupiter and Saturn. A year from now, a little over a year, it'll be in very, very close to the, to the Earth and the inner solar system. So, questions? Yes? Closest to the Earth was going to be December, late December. So Christmas time next year, essentially. End of December next year. And I'm sure if it comes, and it's going to be, it'll be all over. I mean, the news will have it. The, it'll, be, it'll be all over if it's going to come and be a very prominent visibility. I mean, probably even as it's coming around the sun, there'll be mentions of it as it's getting closer and closer to the sun. But as it's approaching the sun, you know, we're on the other side, so we don't see it very well then. When it comes around, then it's going to be close to us. So it's just, it makes it. That loop, it's going to be at Mars in October. It'll pass closest to the sun in November and then be passing back by the Earth in December. So it's very quick. When it's zipping in there, it's moving extremely quick when it gets into that inner part of the solar system. It just zips around there and then it will take its time. And it's going to take it, you know, all that time to go from where it is now out past Jupiter into Mars. It's going to take it most of a year. And, you know, 15 months from now, this could all be done. It could be on its way back out. So most of that motion is very slow out there, but it'll take that, and then it will be here. Whatever survives will then pass close to the Earth in the end, towards the end of December of next year. So we'll certainly see. As we've gotten more, we get more images of it. As we get more images, 
you know, over the coming months as it gets closer to Mars, then we'll be able to get a much better view of it. The discovery about a week ago, so relatively new. Question? How, yeah. How long will it be like really bright in the sky? It would be really bright for probably a, a month or month or two. I mean, it'll pass close to the sun in November. It'll be passing the Earth in December and leaving in towards January. It'll start to it'll start to fade off. So it won't be something like if it's in the north, like it's yeah, no, no. You'd have you'd have a number of days, or we you'd, you'd certainly get a clear night to be able to, you know, unless it's cloudy for months, which it feels like sometimes, but it usually isn't. You know, sometimes it feels like we've never seen the sun, especially December, January time. But there are those there are those days that you do get to see it. So no, it's not going to be just a single a single day. You have to see it today, or you're out of luck. You know, not like the transit of Venus. Okay, you had one chance. If you missed it in June, you're not going to get to see another one ever because the next one is about 120 years from now. So unless you're living to, you know, you're 140, 150, you're not going to see another one. I think I read something about online yesterday that said it's probably going to be brighter than the moon. That's what it said. This, could, this has the potential to be brighter than the full moon, which means very bright, very bright object. So you certainly wouldn't be able to miss it. You don't need a telescope. You don't need binoculars. You know, if it's there, you're going to go out at night. You're not even, gonna, even if you don't know it's there, you're going to go out and see it. You know, you're going to see it just because it's going to be there. If it's visible in, in this hemisphere, you're going to be able to see it. So, other questions? No? no. Okay. We'll go from the comets out to the stars then. We're on chapter 10, and we had just started chapter 10. Well, let's not go back to the beginning of it, though. We're almost at the beginning. It was the first regular slide here. And last time on Friday, we've been talking about parallax. Parallax is our only way to directly measure the distance to a star. It's our only direct measurement. Can't go take a tape measure out there. Can't fly a spaceship there and back and see how far we traveled. This is the only direct measurement to actually get a physical measurement of a distance to a star. And we use the position of the Earth at one spot here in January, for example. Take a picture of the sky. What does it look like? Well, it looks like this. whole bunch of stars, and here's our star in question. Six months later, the Earth has now moved and is now 180 million miles on the other side of the sun. So we've moved you know, 180 million miles in that time. We take another picture of that same part of the sky. Background stars are all the same. See the same pattern there, there, there. Everything else is the same except this star that was here is now over here. It's appeared to move just because the Earth's perspective has changed. Where that we're observing from has changed. So I gave you the example last time. If you hold your finger out, right, and flip between which eye you have open, your finger appears to be in different parts of the sky. This would be the nearby star. The end of the edge of the classroom would be the much further stars away. It's appearing to move relative to those. And being able to measure that angle, how far did it appear to move, tells us exactly how far away it is. The smaller the angle, the further away it is. Turns out it's an incredibly tiny angle. For the closest star, it's less than one second of arc. One degree, each of those has 60 minutes, each of those minutes has 60 seconds divided up into it, and we're looking at one of those seconds of arc. So, or less than one. 
So very, very small angles we're trying to measure. This only works for maybe the hundred or so nearest stars. Sounds like a lot of stars, but in terms of there's how many billions of stars in our galaxy, and we can measure distances to a few hundred, maybe, it's not a whole lot. And to get down to that, we're not just measuring arc seconds. Now that's the closest star is about three quarters of an arc second you're measuring. You're getting down to stars that you're measuring hundredths or thousandths of an arc second. You've got to be able to get extremely accurate measurements to be able to determine these distances. Once you do and once you measure it, this is just the equation that gives you the distance, that your distance in parsecs is 1 divided by your parallax angle. Put your parallax angle in arc seconds. If it's 1 arc second, 1 divided by 1 is 1 and you are 1 parsec away. 1 parsec is about 3.3 and a quarter light years. The nearest star is about 4 light years away. So there is not a star within 1 parsec of the Earth. Okay, so that's where we're finishing up last time. And here's the nearest star. Nearest star to our sun, not Alpha Centauri. Right, you hear Alpha Centauri is the nearest star. Alpha Centauri is one of them. Alpha Centauri is sort of the system. There's three stars there. There's Alpha Centauri and Beta Centauri, which are two relatively. Alpha Centauri is a lot like the sun. Beta Centauri is a little bit fainter, a little bit cooler than the sun. But there's also a third star there called Proxima Centauri. Proxima, proximate, closest. It's actually the closest star to us right now. So what you really have is you've got two stars that are orbiting relatively close to each other and around, and then one other star that goes around them. And that's Proxima. Right now, here it is. If Earth is way off in the distance down here, it's a little bit closer. Is it a lot closer? Not really, but it is the closest star. You know, it's not, you're not talking light years difference. You're, not ta you're talking you know, astronomical units size distance away. You know, tens or hundreds of astronomical units away, further away. But not anything, in term, anything big in terms of distances. But that is the closest star. So the closest star is actually Proxima Centauri. Alpha Centauri and Beta are slightly further away. And it's sort of, in a way, in terms of distances, it's sort of like saying, you know, um, what, Boston is so far away, but one place in Boston and another place in, you know, there are differences. One's a little bit further away, but it doesn't really matter. If you're trying to travel there, is it any big deal? Are you considering that? Until you get there, then it makes a difference once you're there and you're trying to, trying to go around, you know, yeah, something's different. Or going to Washington, you know, something's closer. What's closer, the Washington Monument or the White House to us? Well, one of them is closer. Does it make any difference if you're going, until you get there, does it really make any difference for measuring it now? You know, they're the same distance away. Really, in terms of perspective, they're that, they're that close together. But one right now is on the near side. Of course, over time, it orbits around them. So if you come back, you know, hundreds of years from now, there'll be a time when actually Alpha and Beta are much cl are closer than Proxima. Proxima will be on the other side of the orbit and will be a little bit further away from the Earth. Now, we did a scale model a little bit towards the, at the beginning of class. I did went through an example of this. This is a slightly different one, but just to give you an idea, again, of the scales as we're looking at this. If you make the sun be a marble, so a little smaller than I, than I made it, the Earth is just a tiny grain of sand about one meter away. What's in between those two? Two more grains of sand. So in that meter, between the sun and the Earth, You've got two more little grains of sand there, nothing else. How empty space is. 
the next star, that next marble, Alpha Centauri, the Alpha Centauri system, would be 270 kilometers away. It's empty. How many stars are in between those? None. You got a marble here with a few dust grains around it. You got a couple more marbles 270 kilometers away. That's what? 600, about 160, 170 miles? Because usually people get the mile measurement better than they get the kilometer measurement. It means a little bit more to say 100, that 160 or 170 miles. You know, that's quite a ways away. You, know, you could drive, drive from here, and drive and drive and drive, and you haven't gotten to the nearest star to that scale. The solar system from that one marble extends about 50 meters around. Now, so the solar system and, the, and that, the planets and everything would be within about 50 of these meters away to that scale with the sun as, sun as the marble. Earth would be about one meter away. Uh, Jupiter would be about five. Saturn would be about ten. Uranus, Neptune, Neptune would be about 30 meters away. If you add out you know, Pluto and all of the Kuiper belt and everything that's out there just beyond that, you're talking about 50 meters. Out of 270 kilometers, what's in between them? Nothing. It's that, that is how empty, try to give you a perspective of how empty space really is. Yeah, there's occasional particles out there. I'm not going to say it's absolutely nothing, but it's a better vacuum than you could come close to producing on Earth. There's, you know, you could go for meters without meeting a particle. You know, whereas here you have billions of billions of billions in every little square centimeter in the atmosphere. So space is very, very empty. You know, not just as empty as you thought it was, but even emptier. You know, think of how empty you can think and then go emptier. It's even emptier than that. So here's a sketch of looking at the, some of the closest stars to our sun. You should recognize all these prominent names, right? Now, maybe a few, right? Alpha Centauri, we've heard of that one. Might have heard of Procyon. I don't know, some of the others might come up in some of the science fiction. Sirius. 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 Sirius is a bright one. Those are some of the bright ones. But some of the fainter ones sometimes come up in some of the science fiction because they're picking out close stars. So I can't place any of them off the top of my head, but I'm sure some of them, some of them do. Most of them don't have very prominent names. They have catalog names. So here's a couple of Ross stars, 128 and 248. Well, that's just stars 128 and 248 in that catalog. So there are different catalogs that were done, and just the stars were just numbered. Some of them are named by the constellations. You know, Tau Ceti is a star in the constellation of Cetus. And you count them by brightness, right? Alpha is the brightest, then beta, then gamma. So it's one of the fainter stars in Cetus. Some of them are, this one has a variable star name. UV Ceti is actually a name for a variable star that changes its brightness. So you don't see, again, the key is you're not going to see a lot of prominent stars. Most of what you look, think of out there when you see stars, you'll notice that there's no, none of the stars in Orion are out there, right? Betelgeuse, Rigel, two bright stars in Orion aren't there. Um, Antares, the bright star in Scorpius, one of the brightest stars in the sky, is not, not there. Um, Aldebaran is a bright star in Taurus. What else? A couple other, I mean, many of the bright stars, the names you typically hear of, aren't there. They're not close to the Earth. It's really that those stars are just incredibly bright because they look brighter than any of these stars. These aren't the brightest stars in the sky. In fact, some of these, many of these, 
Alpha Centauri you can see with the naked eye, Sirius, Tau Ceti, Procyon, you know, a few of them you can actually see with the naked eye. Most of them aren't. Most of them would not be visible if you were to go out and look at night. These wouldn't be the stars you're seeing. The closest stars to the sun tend to be rather faint and indistinct as compared to the sun itself. And this is the 30, close, 30 closest stars to around in, in our area. Barnard star is one that was mentioned there. Barnard star was named after the astronomer that discovered it. And it's unusual in that it has the largest what we call proper motion of a star. Proper motion of a star is just how we see it move on the sky. Now, stars, talk about the stars, the constellations don't change. You come back and you open back in a thousand years, nothing's changed, right? All the constellations are still there, they're the same. Well, the stars are moving very slowly through space. So they're all moving, so their positions are changing. And when you come back and you look at tens of thousands of years or millions of years, the positioning of the constellations will change. So if you were a million years ago looking at the, well, Big Dipper wouldn't have looked exactly like it looks now. Some of the stars would have been in slightly different positions. Just because they're slowly moving relative to each other. They're not all moving together in space. They're moving, some are going this way, some are going that way, you know, all different directions. Barnard star has what we call the largest of those motions. Proper motion just means, again, how it's moving on the sky. Now, you wouldn't necessarily pick it out there, but you can see the arrows pointing out where it is. So you can see that in the first image, there it is. And now it's here. Well, if you look at some of these other stars, there's those two. They haven't really changed their position. This one has actually moved. It's moving very quickly, and it's very close. This is how far it moved, though, in 22 years. How far did it move? Not much. The scale there is in the middle, 30 arc minutes. And if you recall, 30 arc minutes is about half a degree. That's about the size of the full moon. It hasn't moved that whole distance. It's moved a tiny fraction of that distance. So it hasn't even moved you know, a quarter of the full moon. It was down here, below this star. Now it's slightly ab above, just barely above this star. It hasn't even moved the diameter of the full moon in 22 years. This is the largest, fastest moving star. But we do have something we do have to take into account when we're looking for when we're looking for looking for stars that they are moving as well, and they really have two different motions because we don't see that three-dimensional view of the universe. We can't see how we can't go sit there and look from up above and watch this star moving through it. We watch it move across the face of the sky. That's what we call its transverse or proper motion. That's where we see it move among the stars. It also has a radial component. Radial just means towards or away from us. So it could be moving towards us, could be moving away from us. In this case, it's moving towards us. Alpha Centauri system's actually getting a little bit closer at about 20 kilometers every second. But it's not moving straight towards us. It's not going to hit us. You can't say, okay, it's how many light years away and it's going to strike us. How, when is it going to hit us? Well, it's not. Because it's moving, we're looking at the components of the velocity. We're looking at a velocity in this direction and in this direction. So overall, it's moving some direction in space. And it will get closer and closer to us. At some point, billions of years from now, it'll actually be about one parsec away as it travels by and it keeps going and it'll end up getting further and further away again. So right now it's a little over a parsec, 
billions of years from now, it'll be closest at maybe about one parsec, and then it will start moving away again. Eventually, if you come back far enough in the future, there could be another star that would move and be, might be actually closer than the Alpha Centauri system. But the idea here is that there's different types of motion. We can talk about motion in terms of towards us or away from us. That's the radial motions. We can talk about transverse. That's what we see on the sky. That's the actual motion we can see. If I could sit there and watch a star, you know, take pictures every 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, watch it slowly moving through the sky, you can see it slowly making a pattern, a straight line through the sky as it moves through space. If you put them together, you get how is it really moving? What is its true velocity? Where is it going in space? This is the harder one to measure, actually, the proper motion. Sounds like it would be easier. All you got to do is watch it move, right? This is a very close star. And close objects are going to appear to move faster. Right? You know that when you're driving, something right next to you on the road seems to zip right by you very quickly, whereas something way off in the distance seems to move much slower. Well, many of these stars, this is one of the closest stars to the sun. Many of those stars are much, much further away and are therefore going to look to move even slower than this. And this isn't, you know, even though it's moving at a fast space, fast rate, in terms of what it's moving on the sky, it's not zipping by. You know, it's not going to change its positions much in a lifetime. 22 years here, it's moved a little bit. It's moved some tiny fraction of the full moon. It'll take a lifetime to move the, fraction, to move the full moon in terms of distance. So it's not moving very, it's moving fast in terms of real, real speed. You know, 24 kilometers per second is, you know, not a, not, a, not a slow speed by any means. That's pretty down. If we can go that fast, boy, you could get any place real quick, right? But in terms of you know, what we see on the sky, the distances are so far away that it doesn't appear to move very quickly relative to the other stars. All right, luminosities. We have two different luminosities that we're going to talk about here. We have um, an absolute brightness. And we have an apparent brightness. Luminosity is what we call the absolute brightness. How much power is being radiated by the star? How bright is that star really? If I were sitting around orbiting that star and I could collect the energy and compare it to what we get from the Earth, how would it compare? How would it compare to what we get from the sun? That's not what we see. Now, I can't see the true luminosity of a star. I see what we call the apparent luminosity or the apparent brightness of a star. That is how bright it appears when viewed from Earth. Right? That's what we can actually observe. We can see a star from Earth. We can measure how much energy we're getting from it. It depends on how bright it really is, but it also depends on the distance. Right? I can have a really, really bright light, and if it's close to you, it's going to look extremely bright. But I can take that same light and put it a half a mile away, and you might still be able to see it, but it's not going to look near as bright as it does when it's close to you. So the apparent magnitude, what we see, depends on how far, not only how bright it really is, how much energy it's putting out, but it depends on how far away it is. So it depends on those two things. Again, you could have two objects that look just as bright in the sky. You could have two stars. Go out and look at night and see two stars that are almost exactly as bright. Are they really just putting out the same amount of energy? Or do you have a faint one here and a really bright one way back here? Okay? 
They're going to look the same, same bright, really bright one here is going to look fainter because it's further away. This one's going to look brighter than it normally would because it's a little bit closer. They might appear exactly as bright on the, sky, on the sky, but they're really not the same type of star. They're not the same brightness of star. So part of that is what we call the inverse square law. Now we looked at that a little bit for gravity, but inverse square law for light, same. It just says that the light is getting diffused out as you get further and further away. So if you have your light source or your star here, and you're at one unit away, say one astronomical unit, a certain amount of energy comes through one square. If I go twice as far away, so say one astronomical unit, two astronomical units, or one light year and two light years, now that same energy isn't going through one square, isn't going through two squares, it's actually going through four squares. So the same amount of intensity that you are picking up each square meter, each square foot, whatever you want to measure right here, is now four of those. If you go three times away, it's spread out among nine. Four, 16 squares. Five, 25 squares. 10, 100 squares. So as you get further and further away, the light source is going to get fainter and fainter very, very quickly. So when we see these bright stars out there that are very far away, it means they've got to be putting out a heck of a lot of energy for us to see them from that distance. They wouldn't be visible. If we were to take the sun and put it at the distance of Another star, say Alpha Centauri, just for one. Alpha Centauri and the Sun are about the same brightness. It would be a relatively bright star in the Alpha Centaurian sky. Not the bright, maybe not, probably not the brightest star in their sky, but it would be relatively bright. That's the nearest star. If you were to take the Sun and put it about 30 light years away, isn't all that far compared to the size of our galaxy. I mean, it's, it's still not very far away. <laughs> It would be about one of the faintest stars you could see in the sky if you went out right now at night. That's about how bright it would be, about 30 light years. It would still be visible to the naked eye. It would be what we call about a fourth magnitude star, so it still could see it, but it would be very faint. If you were in a bright city, it would be washed out. If you're in a relatively dark site in the eastern part of the U.S., you'd probably barely be able to see the sun at 30, about 30 light years. And again, 30 light years sounds like a great distance. But goodness, when you're talking about the diameter of the galaxy being 75 or 100,000 light years, 30 light years is you know, right, in your own, right in your backyard. And you would not be able to see the sun. But we see these, some of these stars that are hundreds or thousands of light years away. How much energy are they putting out? It's a lot. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to see them. If all the stars were like the sun, you know, this night sky would be a lot darker than it is. If all the stars were just like the sun, or even a lot of these stars that we saw around the sun, there's a lot of very big, very bright stars out there in the universe. And those are the ones that we can see over tremendous distances. So what I was trying to get the point across a little bit earlier <coughs> says that here's two stars, star A and star B. Star A is a fainter star that's close to you. Star B is a much brighter star further away. Okay. If you have them all balanced exactly right, then they might, appear ex they might appear the same brightness to you observing them from Earth. They're not really the same brightness. You might have a much brighter star here, just much further away, and a much fainter star very close to you. So what we see in terms of apparent brightnesses doesn't tell us anything about the star. 
tells us how bright it looks from Earth. Shouldn't say it doesn't tell us anything. It tells us how bright it looks from Earth. But it doesn't tell us anything about how bright that star really is unless we know the distance. And I've already kind of told you, distances are hard to determine. I can determine them for the nearest stars. That helps. If I can determine the distance to a star, then I know how to be able to correct for this. And I can say, OK, how bright is this star really? So distances, again, are going to be a key. If we can't determine distances to those other stars, the apparent brightnesses don't do us a lot of good. Measuring magnitudes. There's a scale here on the left-hand side which shows a number of different objects, you know, how bright, how bright or faint objects we can see. Astronomers use a magnitude scale to determine brightness. And it goes from, if it actually was started thousands of years ago, and what was being done was they were classifying all the stars. You know, how bright are the stars? We were putting, they were putting them in bins. So they'd put stars of the first magnitude <coughs> were the brightest. So the brightest stars were stars of the first magnitude. You'd go through the sky and say, okay, this is the bright star. This is really bright. These stars are the, these are the brightest stars in the sky. These 50 stars, say, for example, are the, some of the brightest stars in the sky. Those are stars of the first magnitude. Next brightest set, okay, there's the first magnitude. The next brightest set, they're not quite as bright, but they're the second magnitude. Third, fourth, fifth, sixth was the faintest you could see. Talking thousands of years ago, no telescopes, no other aids to observe. So all you could see was what you could see with your naked eye. The very, very faintest stars that were just at the edge of your vision would be classified as sixth magnitude stars. Makes, hopefully it makes sense the way I explain it, right? Brightest stars are stars of the first magnitude, faintest are stars of the sixth. But when you actually turn that in and use that for numbers in terms of brightness, it does mean when you start giving them numerical values that the smaller the magnitude, the brighter the star. So a, a star with a magnitude of 1.23, for example, and a star of magnitude 5.23, say, this one's a lot brighter. Got to get used to that, right? Magnitudes go backwards. Bigger the number, the fainter the object. And that means that when you go to things like the sun, when other objects were added in, you know, we're looking at just stars when the magnitude scale was developed, when you start adding in things like the sun, the sun ends up being a magnitude negative 26.7. It's much brighter than anything else. It's the smallest number we have. That's the brightest object that we can see in the sky. The full moon is a lot fainter, minus 12.5. Venus, when it's at its brightest, is about minus four. Some of the brightest stars, Sirius is about minus one and a half, Alpha Centauri is zero. Don't worry about writing down all the numbers. I'm not going to test you on any specific magnitude number for any of these. Um, Betelgeuse, Polaris, get down to the naked eye limit here. Okay, that's about sixth magnitude. Now we have AIDS. Now we can actually see things lower. And Barnard star is one example. Barnard star that we looked at, one of the nearest stars to the sun. Very close, but it's well below naked eye visibility. That would be sixth magnitude. It's a 9.5, so significantly fainter. You could barely see it in binoculars. 
Binoculars will get you down to about tenth magnitude. Small telescopes can get you down to about fourteenth magnitude fainter objects. Larger telescopes, you're starting up to one meter and four meter telescopes, you're starting to get down into the high twenties, up to about thirty where the Hubble telescope will get you, down to about thirtieth magnitude. Now, doesn't seem like that big of a difference, right? Go from negative 26 to plus 30, well, that's not all that big a difference in terms of numbers. But it's not a typical scale like a temperature scale where you can say if you have a first magnitude star and a sixth magnitude star, well if that were a 1,000 degree star and a 6,000 degree star, you'd know one was six times hotter than the other, right? One's 1,000 degrees, one's 6,000 degrees, that's easy to do. Not quite so simple in magnitude, sorry. Magnitudes, five magnitudes, first to sixth, is 100 times in brightness. So going from a first magnitude star to a sixth magnitude star isn't six times fainter or brighter, depending on which way you're going, fainter here, brighter here, but it's 100 times. So a first magnitude star is 100 times brighter than a sixth magnitude star. Each magnitude is about two and a half times. Brighter or fainter than the one before it. So a second magnitude star would be two and a half times brighter than a third magnitude star. And a first magnitude star would be about two and a half times brighter than a second magnitude star. So what idiot designed this, right? Why would you do that? That's actually the way your eye works. Remember, this was done, this wasn't done, you know, modern. If we developed magnitudes now, we wouldn't use this. But we're using a scale that was developed thousands of years ago by how your eye sees and how your eye reacts to light. And your eye, that's how your eye naturally reacts and sees the light. It doesn't see it, you know, at two or three times. It sees it in kind of what they call a logarithmic scale. And it's similar if you've seen, you've ever looked at, ever watched the earthquake news, right? You talk about the Richter scale. Well, you know, a fourth magnitude, you know, an, an eighth and a ninth magnitude earthquake, there's a big difference, right? They're both bad, but it gets much larger in intensity than you'd otherwise expect. Oh, it's only eight to nine, it's not a big difference, but it's a big difference in terms of the amount of energy. That's a similar logarithmic scale. Not exactly the same as this, but the same idea is that, you know, there's a difference to go from an 8.1 to an 8.2. It's not just a tiny difference, it's a pretty big difference in terms of the intensity of the earthquake. And certainly going from a fourth magnitude earthquake to an eighth magnitude. You know, fourth magnitude, magnitude four earthquake is about nothing. Right? You can feel it. You might feel something shaking a little bit. If you're in an eighth magnitude, you're in an eight, that's pretty bad. So magnitudes are done similarly. The two things I like you to look at, again, that there is, first of all, remember for sure that they're different, that they're, they go backwards. So the smaller the number, the brighter the object. So the smaller, even more negative, negative that gets, that you get a brighter object. And also that it's not, that it's a, not that it's a logarithmic scale, but it's not a, it's not an even scale. That there's a hundred between each, each set. So between first magnitude and sixth magnitude, again, not six times brighter, six times fainter, but a hundred times brighter or fainter. So. Fun with magnitudes just because they were developed, and really because they were developed so many thousands of years ago. Backwards just because, well, first magnitudes, those are the brightest, right? They're the stars of the first magnitude. That, that makes sense when you say it that way, but when you start putting actual numbers to it, 
as you do nowadays and say it's a magnitude 1.23 star, now all of a sudden you've got your smaller number means a brighter star. Where am I? There I am. Now some of the other things we can learn, so that's something about the brightnesses we can measure. We can learn about temperatures. So if we look at this chart on the right hand side, this uh, picture of the sky, we can see that there are some red stars there and there are some blue stars there. On the left hand side we have Orion. You've got Betelgeuse is a reddish star towards the upper left. Rigel is a bluish star towards the lower right. Those are telling us the temperatures. The hotter the star, the further it will be towards the blue part of the spectrum. So when we look at this one, when we look at this image here, you can pick out, here's some very hot stars. Blue, 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 anything with a bluish tinge to it, the bluer it looks, the hotter it's going to be. Cooler stars are going to look very red. You get down to some that look a little bit cooler, a little bit orangish yellow maybe, and you get a few red, 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 very red are among the coolest stars. So just by looking at the light, we can determine the temperatures of the stars as well. Now not exactly there, I'm not giving you the, I'll give you go through the exact, some more exact determination in the coming lecture, but it gives you an idea of how bright they are. You can look at that image and tell me which ones are the hotter and which ones are the cooler stars. You're not going to be able to tell me whether it's, you know, 3,000 degrees or 4,000 degrees, it's not giving you that kind of detail. There's other measurements that we can make that can actually precisely measure the temperatures of a star by looking at how much energy they emit at different wavelengths. So we can actually measure, with other equipment, we can measure the star and say, for example, that might be 15,000 degrees temperature. There are measurements we can make to do that. But just in general, by looking at the star, it tells you the temperature. So when you look at Betelgeuse, or look at Orion, say, Betelgeuse up there, you'll see it, go look at it. If you get out in the morning sky now, you can see it, you can see it right now. If you wait a few months, you'll be able to see it in the evening. You'll see it has a reddish tinge to it, even to your naked eye. Rigel will look a little bluish white to your naked eye. That's a difference in temperature. Betelgeuse is about half the temperature of the sun. Rigel's probably about two to two and a half times hotter than the sun. So one's about 3,000 degrees, Rigel, I didn't look up the exact number, probably about 12 to 15, maybe about 12 to 15,000. And I may change that when I come to the next slide, it may say it's a little bit warmer than that. But it's significantly hotter than the sun to look that blue. And there's Rigel, 20,000 degrees. Okay, I was close. Roughly the, roughly the temperature. So Rigel's about 20,000 degrees looking pretty blue there. How do we see that? Well, we can measure it more accurately. If you recall, we mentioned the black body curves. That's the temperature or the distribution of the electromagnetic energy from any star. It depends on what the temperature is. The peak, where the peak is, tells you something about the temperature, but also the entire distribution of the light. So you could look at a star, for example, that's about 10,000 degrees, a little bit hotter than the sun, and it gives you something like this. We look at it in two wavelength bands. We look at it in what we call visible light, yellowish light. Just not the whole visible spectrum, just a tiny portion in the yellow. And we look at it in blue light. So put two filters on the telescope, filter out everything but the yellow light. How bright is that star? Filter out everything but the blue light. Measure those two. If you have a star about 10,000 degrees, they're going to be just about the same. 
it's emitting just about, just about as much yellow light as it is blue light. So if we can measure those two, that'll tell us the temperature. Because look, if we go to a much cooler star, about 3,000 degrees, this starts dropping off very quickly in the visible part of the spectrum so that it's emitting a lot more yellow light than it is blue light. If you look at Betelgeuse through a filter in the yellow, it's going to look brighter than if you take look at the same star through the blue. It's not emitting as much blue light. So if we looked at those and compared those two, we could then determine the exact temperature by looking at how those two vary. If you look at a much hotter star, you're going to be emitting more blue light. You're going to have more blue than yellow light. So all you need is two wavelengths. You don't need to measure it all the entire spectrum. You don't need to find where the peak is necessarily. You can tell where it is by everything else, but you can just measure at these two specific wavelengths and that will give you the temperature. And you will see stars varying from <coughs> extremely blue out here in Orion, very, very hot stars up to 30,000 degrees, some are even hotter, down through blue, white, yellowish, yellow, white, orange, or red, just depending on the temperature. So stars will give you kind of a range like that as you go through the spectrum. You'll see the bluish up here, sort of a white in, white in the middle, and then they start to glow into the yellows and the oranges and the reds as they get much cooler. So that's about the range of temperatures that you can get. The coolest stars are going to be around 3,000 degrees. Hottest stars, 30,000, maybe 40,000 degrees is about the range that you're going to get for stars. Now, the spectra tell us a lot more. So in order to determine types of stars, we had some there, but in order to determine a different classification, as we call them, of stars, we really look at the entire spectrum. So instead of looking at just, you know, just the black body curve, just those two measurements, that gives us the temperature, but we can actually do them a lot better, do a lot better. We can look at the entire spectrum, and they tell us about the temperatures. And we classify them as follows, O, B, A, F, G, K, and M. Everybody knows their alphabet. That's, of course, how you're going to set up. If you're going to set seven classes of stars, that's how you're going to set them up, right? That's how you're going to do it. No, you're not going to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G. That would make too much sense. That's how it was done in the first place. It was. When they were first classified, when the stars were first classified, we didn't have all the understanding that I've already been giving you. When they were first classified, we looked at a whole bunch of, they looked at a whole bunch of spectra, talking about 100, 120 years ago, and they looked at the spectra and they said, well, these, look the, these all look the same. This is one class. And in fact, they started with A. A was the spectra that looked almost the blankest. They had some very intense lines of one kind in them and not much else. So they were the cleanest spectra, so they were type A. Then as they got more and more complicated and more and more types, some of the rare types are found, you just went through the alphabet, through O. Once we learned more about it, you know, we didn't understand that there was a temperature range, that this was not, not the highest temperature or the lowest temperature. We just knew that all of those stars had the cleanest spectra. So they were arranged by something differently when they were first done. So originally it would have been A, B, C, D, E, F, G and so on through the alphabet. Once we got a better understanding of what it meant, of that when we were looking at those spectra that we were looking at very hot stars and very cool stars, 
then everything got rearranged. So now it's OBAFGKM. That actually has a physical meaning, that there's a temperature that increases as you go through it. The old one was not a physical meaning, it was just an observation. It was just physically how the spectra ended up looking. So it was a matter. It wasn't that you know, astronomers didn't do this just to confuse students and make them memorize some odd pattern of stars. To say, okay, here they, here they are. You know, this is the way we're going to measure them. It goes back to how things were originally determined, how we originally did them, similar to the magnitudes. It wasn't done to make it confusing. It made sense at the time. And it's just been carried over. And something that's been used for thousands of years isn't likely going to be switched to make something that's just easier or makes more sense. You know, look how quickly we've gone to the metric system, right? You know, we still measure things. You know, still everything's still in miles, even though, although still people know what a two liters of pop is better than two quarts, right? You know, two liter bottle makes sense because you've been using that for how many years? But you don't just switch. Things don't just switch easily. People don't just switch, and astronomers have used this for so long that I don't think they I don't think they would. You know, this is hundreds of years worth. The magnitudes are thousands of thousands of years worth of time. Let me see what my next one is. When we do them, this is the kind of spectra that we saw, and I'll come back here again on Friday. But when you looked at those, when you looked at some of those spectra, the A ones were one type, and as you went through them. You added more and more as you go down to the other, as the temperatures change. So it turns out that it was a temperature sequence that we were seeing. Now they're seeing a lot more in A there than you typically, than you typically see necessarily. But in the hotter stars, you only see certain lines. In the cooler stars, you see others. But the original classification was done differently. Again, it was just done on appearance and just grouped together. Here are the, best, here are the same stars. Here are the same type of stars. These all look the same. What you're seeing are lines of different elements. There's hydrogen lines, helium, carbon, iron. Depending on what you're seeing, you're seeing more or less of them. And I'll come back on Friday and sort of pick up where we left off here with spectral classification and go through that a little bit more. And then I think we have an exercise that I can do on that one of the times this week. So, Questions, questions? Exam Wednesday, not including any of this through the end of chapter 9. All righty. Have a good afternoon. I'll see you on Wednesday.